You can be seated. And if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me in it to Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes, just right of the middle in most Bibles. And today we come to the end of Ecclesiastes, to the end of our study and to the ending of the book. Interestingly, it is a passage about coming to the end of life. Or more specifically, about living life now in view of coming to the end of life soon. Further interesting is that the passage before us today not only deals with the end of life, but it uses that language of the end for the conclusions that can be drawn about life. You see it in chapter 12, verse 13, the end of the matter is this. So we come to the end in multiple ways today, the end of our study, the end of this book, which wrestles with life in view of the end and provides for us the end of the matter. And yet, conversely, this moment right now is not the end. If the Lord gives you life, if the Lord doesn't return tomorrow, we'll go on. It'll be another day. We'll meet again next week. We'll open our Bibles again. By the way, it'll be Second Peter if you want to read ahead in view of what's to come. We'll next week begin a study there. So it's not the end. Life goes on. Next Sunday we'll open our Bibles again and hopefully we'll do the same several times in between our Sundays together. Tomorrow's become today's. They come and they go. Time is a fascinating thing to me. I have an unusual amount of clocks, an unnecessary amount of clocks. I counted in my study today, there are four clocks. I don't need four clocks. I like the way they look, and I'm fascinated by time. And they're good reminders that we need to redeem the time, right? We need to use it wisely. I, I wear a wristwatch on my arm, despite the fact that I almost always have an iPhone with me that tells me the time. I, I like the look of clocks. Now, if you really want to waste some time, Google quotes on time, as I did yesterday. And you will find lots of bad leadership pep talks, nonsensical sayings trying to pass for clever insights. Time is a weird thing, but time isn't the problem. Time isn't the product of a business school or life coaches or parents or teachers. Time is biblical. God made time. The Bible deals with time. I was rereading a book recently by Leland Riken called Redeeming the Time, A Christian Approach to Work and Leisure. It's a great book. I think it's out of print, but I, last I saw, Amazon had about 30 copies maybe used, and I'd encourage you to, to get one of them. I was reminded reading that book that so much of the Bible is time-specific. We're called to remember, which looks back. We're, we're finding, we find passages which speak of today or tomorrow or the end. And our passage at the end of Ecclesiastes is like that. It addresses now, in view of the end. It addresses the young and the old. See for yourself, 
as I read the end of Ecclesiastes, and then we'll work our way through it. Look at chapter 11, verse 7, and we'll read through chapter 12. It says, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, my son, Beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Well, a few different commands or instructions will help us structure our thoughts. Three R words. The first, rejoice. Rejoice in life now. That's the second half of chapter 11. Remember that the book of Ecclesiastes is like a musical score, much of which is written in the minor key. But there are some bright spots, some happy moments these invitations to rejoice, which are there in the book, not just to provide some needed levity against the backdrop of all the tears and the hand-wringing that's going on. No, they're not there just to provide pathetic resolution, as some suggest. Like, we might as well eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. No, they are, they are the moments of clarity. They are the big conclusions. Remember, this preacher, as he's called here, 
He's been on a search, an investigation of life, about the meaning of life, the purpose of life, and how to do life. It's a search that we all know very well. Although we're amateurs at it compared to this preacher. We amateurs wonder whether we would be satisfied and fulfilled if we had another of this or that, or a better this or that, or more these or those. We may wonder about wealth. Would that satisfy? How much? We might wonder about accomplishments. Will that get me home? Will that do it for me? How about fame? Or even ease and entertainment? Laughter? Or intellect and learning? It's like each one of these is a, a certain road that people try to drive down to see how far they can get, to see if they can get far enough that they can put the car in park and enjoy it. But most of us never get very far down any one of these roads, let alone all of them. But this guy, the preacher, who maybe is King Solomon or someone like him, he has had the wherewithal to get really far down all these streets. Wealth and accomplishments and, and creativity and fame and ease and entertainment. Sex and women and food and drink and laughter. In his conclusion, at the beginning of the book and at the end, chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 12, verse 8, he says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity or or better vapor of vapors everything is vapor it's mist it's smoke it's it's fragile it's fleeting it's temporary it's frustrating it's mysterious 38 times he's used this word vanity or vapor useless difficult fleeting but his ultimate conclusion doesn't stop there. His ultimate conclusion is not despair or suicide or raw hedonism. Neither is it simply enduring this life while we wait for the next. According to Ecclesiastes, the answer isn't in treating life as some sort of waiting room for heaven. But we're supposed to get on with it, and we're supposed to enjoy God's good gifts. When we pursue his gifts apart from him, well, that's sin. That's idolatry. And ultimately, it doesn't satisfy. In fact, it, it frustrates and leaves us hollow. But when we are right with him, when there's forgiveness of sins, life makes sense. When things are not demanding of us everything, then they can still be something. When we're not trying to get everything out of one of God's good gifts, well, then we can use it as he intended and put it before him with joy. We can rejoice. So verse 7 says, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. 
Earlier in Ecclesiastes, the sun was a metaphor for labor and, and toil and frustration. Under the sun was a phrase earlier in Ecclesiastes for that whole fallen world that we live on, this planet. The sun goes up, the sun sets Everywhere it goes, that's a fallen world. It's under the sun. But now he has a new set of glasses on, and he says the sun is pleasant. And we know that from experience, don't we? Not looking directly at the sun, but the sun gives warmth and beauty. We've enjoyed the sun. We've benefited from the sun as we're supposed to. However many years you get, and whatever kind of years they are. Verse 8, let him rejoice in them all. In old age, rejoice. And if you're young, even more. Verse 9, in the days of your youth, rejoice. Rejoice now as a young person because you got more time. You've got more energy. Rejoice now because now is now. And you can't wait for tomorrow. You may not have it. Notice how the commands, the invitations to enjoy or rejoice are just stacked up and multiplied. Twice in verse 8 and verse 9 it says rejoice. Verse 9 says let your heart cheer you. Verse 9 says walk in these ways. Verse 10 says remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body. And this isn't unusual in the Bible. Ecclesiastes isn't all that unique in its call for us to enjoy. You could just search these words in the Bible. Joy, delight, gladness, satisfaction, being satisfied. We're called to do this. We're called to do this because God does it. God is joyful. Our God, the only true God, is the happy God. All the other gods out there, small g gods of men's own making, they're not happy, are they? You ever seen a Buddha with a big smile? I haven't. All the gods of this world are angry. They need appeasing. But not our God. C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. That's what awaits us. That's where we're going. That's what we'll do. We will rejoice in heaven perfectly and to the full. And so we better get practicing now. It's commanded. It's a reasonable command because we're made in God's image, because it's fun, because it's good, because it's right, because it's what we'll do in heaven. But it is a command and some of us need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded that delight yourself in the Lord is actually a command. Be reminded of it as you fight for joy. A couple of books that I found very helpful as we've been going through Ecclesiastes. One is by John Piper called When I Don't Desire God. Especially helpful is his last chapter, Wielding the World in the Fight for Joy. Another book I found helpful along these lines is Randy Elkhorn's big book on happiness. You have questions about happiness? Well, Randy Elkhorn 
anticipates 45 questions and answers them in his book on happiness. What a great resource. Rejoice. Rejoice in what? Well, this passage doesn't really say apart from light and the sun. Previously in Ecclesiastes, we've been invited and commanded to enjoy food, people, relationships, and meaningful work, even when it's hard, meaningful work. Elsewhere in the Bible, there is a kind of rejoicing in God as we celebrate the gifts he gives. There is a relationship between the gifts and God that is important and tricky. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The sky above is proclaiming his handiwork. Day to day, it is pouring out speech, information, truth. It's saying he's there, and he's glorious, and he's powerful, and he's kind, and he is brilliant. We've said before, in God's creation, there is superfluous glory and beauty. More than enough. It doesn't just say that he's there or just that he's kind of good. It just pours forth speech. So what is this relationship between God and his gifts? Well, for one, the gifts, of course, are not God. And if you're tempted to question God's goodness, because he has recently rearranged your gifts, it may prove that you enjoy and love the gifts more than the gift giver. Gifts can be idolatrous. They can be detached from God. Ecclesiastes has made this abundantly clear. There is a way to enjoy God's gifts that is wrong and sinful. And that's why Ecclesiastes, even in the midst of calling us to rejoice, reminds us, verse 9, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. <laughs> it's like a dad who says to his teenage son, have a good time tonight. Go on, go out with the boys. Here's 20 bucks, spend it on whatever you want. And I'll be here when you get home. I want to hear all about it. Right? That's our God. Our God says, go on. Rejoice. Do what is ever in your heart. And we'll talk about it later on. Now we'll come back to this idea of judgment later on because it comes up again later in our passage. But for now, let's remember that there is a possibility of judgment not being bad news, but good news. There is a kind of standing in judgment that people can pass. And when that's the case, in light of that, we can celebrate and enjoy God's big and little gifts. Green chili, babies giggling. Chubby toddler arms wrapped around your neck. These are a few of my favorite things. Two in the bed together, as Ecclesiastes 4 talked about, that's a good thing. Sunday afternoon naps, 
What's your thing? I'd encourage you at lunch today to have a little discussion with those you're with about what delights God has put in their lives. An Irish hymnist in the mid-1800s wrote a hymn, All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. Each little flower that opens, each little bird that sings, he made their glowing colors, he made their tiny wings. The cold wind in the winter, the pleasant summer sun, the ripe fruits in the garden, he made every one. He gave us eyes to see them and lips that we might tell how great is God Almighty who has made all things well. So rejoice and rejoice now. Don't wait for better days. Who knows if there'll be any more better days than the one you enjoy right now. Don't, don't hold back because of what might have been. Who are you to say what might have been or should have been? God is God. And he has been unthinkably kinder than you or I deserve. So rejoice in life now. Secondly, remember your creator now. Remember. You see that in chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your creator. Think about those words. Remember. What's that mean? It means to keep it in mind. Not just recall it once and then, you know, fail to remember. But you keep remembering. And you ponder. And you, you work out the significance that he's your creator. That implies ownership. He made you. It also implies relationship. He's your creator. But it also implies dependence. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the designer. He's the giver. Remember your creator now. Whenever now is, and especially in your youth, if you still have it. You see the emphasis? Oh, young man. That's chapter 11, verse 9. In your youth. In the days of your youth. Verse 10. Oh, young man. Youth in the dawn of life. Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember the Creator. In the days of your youth, before, well, before you're over the hill. You know that saying, over the hill. A saying for, you know, the back nine of the golf course of life. To use another metaphor, as someone turning 44 this year, I think it's safe to say I'm starting the back nine of life, and as one who's now old enough to have watched many people older than me transcend that hill, get to middle age, and they have gone on the other side, and they are picking up speed. I've seen it, and so I understand that saying over the hill better than I used to. Some metaphors are better than others, right? Well, this one is a, a rich one. It's multi-layered, and it's true. Over the hill. Think back, middle-aged person, silver-haired man, woman. Think back to those younger days, and it seemed like time went by slowly, really slowly. When you're young and in grade school, it feels like birthdays come every three years. And now, on the other side of the hill, 
Uh, it feels like they come every month. They just keep coming and coming and coming. They won't stop and, and it picks up speed. And you're, you're applying the brake on this descent downward, but gravity stronger than your brakes. Makes me think of that song by John Mayer. Stop this train. I want to get off and go home again. I can't take the speed it's moving in. I know I can't, but honestly, won't someone stop this train? Don't know how else to say it. I don't want to see my parents go. One generation's length away from fighting life on my own. So scared of getting older. I'm only good at being young. So I play the numbers game to find a way to say that life has just begun. Had a talk with my old man said, help me understand. He said, turning 68, you renegotiate. Don't stop this train. Don't for a minute change the place you're in. And don't think I couldn't ever understand. I tried my hand. John, honestly, will never stop this train. Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes is actually more heavy-handed and brutal than John Mayer is. In fact, with a smirk. He colorfully portrays old age and failing physicality. You see that? Chapter 12, after a call to remember your creator, verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, when the lights start to go out. And then there are a string of metaphors, verse 3 and 4 and 5. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble. This is talking about hands. Hands shake when someone's in their latter years. The strong men are bent. This might have to do with legs or a back that's bent and hurting. Grinders, those are teeth. Uh, Talking about the day when the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed, it says at the end of verse 3, referring to the loss of eyesight. Verse 4 talks about insomnia. One rises up even at the sound of a bird. Or all the daughters of song being brought low, referring to the loss of hearing. Verse 5, they are afraid also of what is high. The loss of coordination And the increase of fragility means high things are dangerous things. It used to be when you're a kid, high things are fun things. Height means jump. And when you're old, height means just be real careful here, right? The almond tree blossoms, referring to probably white hair. And the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails probably referring to physical intimacy, a time when desire and ability wane. So that's what's coming. You with youth and vigor, this is what's coming. So rejoice now and remember God now, especially in your youth, because the days are coming when you have less time and less energy and less clarity and less ability. I'm sure there are some benefits to old age, to white hair. 
Proverbs says, white hair is a crown of glory. But that's not for today. We're not in Proverbs. We're in Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes says the time is coming when things are just falling apart. Now, if you're an older person and you resent what Ecclesiastes says here, you know it's only because it's true. It's painfully true. It's all too familiar for you. And if you're a young person here and you roll your eyes or you snicker about old people and how they mess things up or how, you know, how they can't do what you do, well, just remember that old age is coming sooner than you think. Every old person was once a baby. And now look at them. That's, that's just what happens. Babies get old. Not only is old age coming, so is death. What verses 5 through 7 speak of. Man is going to his eternal home before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered. Analogies of death, which are sudden and tragic and permanent. The silver cord is there, and then it snaps. That's it. And you're dead. The golden bowl is dropped, and it's broken, and there's no putting it back together. Death is sudden. Death is permanent. And death is because of the curse. Because sin is in this world. The day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And here, in verse 7, the language of Genesis 3 is mentioned to remind us why death is in this world. In Genesis 3, God said, From dust you came, and to dust you will return. And here in Ecclesiastes, it echoes that by saying, The dust returns to the earth as it was. This is what's coming. So remember your creator now. And thirdly, reckon with him. Reckon with God now. These three R's have some distinguishableness, but also some, some overlap. It's, it's like a, a Venn diagram. Do you know those? So there are three circles with this Venn diagram with rejoicing and remembering and reckoning. They're somewhat distinguishable, but they do overlap. To reckon with God is to remember him. And that leads to rejoicing in him and his gifts. You have to reckon with God. Really, there are two things being said here about how we reckon with God. One is reckoning with the shepherd's words, verses 9 to 12, and then reckoning with the final judgment, verses 13 and 14. Let's take each of those one at a time. we got to reckon with the shepherd's words. Notice verses 9 to 12 describe and commend the words that have been written down in the body of Ecclesiastes and what came before. And those words, words of the preacher, it says, are also words, verse 11, given by one shepherd, God. Our Bibles are right to capitalize that S for shepherd. It's God. 
This just briefly speaks to this doctrine we believe from the scriptures, about the scriptures, that there is a dual authorship. Who wrote the Bible? Men moved by God. There's a sense in which God is behind these words, and so they're perfect. We can trust them, even when they're a little confounding, even when they're difficult. They're given by the shepherd. These are words for our shepherding. These are words to be led by and to be fed in and to be protected with. It's what a shepherd does. There are words of knowledge, verse 9. Words of delight, verse 10. Words of truth. They are upright. Like other proverbs, these sayings in Ecclesiastes have been, you see verse 9, weighed and studied and arranged with great care. Or verse 11, they are like goads. What farmers and shepherds would use to poke and prod their animals to get them to move and to go where they needed to go. That poking, that prodding was a little bit painful, but it was for the animal's good. And God's word is like that. It pokes, it prods, it pinches. If, if you don't feel the pinch when you hear the Bible preached, either it's not preached or your heart is that hard. If when you read the Bible on your own, you don't feel any pinch, uh, you're not reading it right. You're reading it maybe selectively. It's, it's, it's like goads. The, the word is like a sword and it cuts, but it also heals. It's, it's also like, like oil. It's a balm. Or here, like nails firmly fixed. You ever feel like God's word just nails you. Well, yeah, that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to nail you sometimes. And so we got to reckon with God's word. We got to reckon with all parts of it. We got to keep reckoning with it. That's what we do as Christians. We just keep coming back to the Bible and we keep reckoning it, reckoning with it, trying to apply it, trying to, to see more, trying to live it out, trying to believe more clearly than we have before. How have you reckoned with the book of Ecclesiastes over these past few months? Have you? Has it changed some things? Has it changed the way you view some things? Changed some things you do or don't do? That's God's word. It's special. These words here in Ecclesiastes, along with the whole of Scripture, it's, it's unique among books. You see verse 12, Beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end. Now the writer isn't against books. He's certainly not against learning or study. But he is saying there's something special about the Bible. There's a book, which is the book, and then there are all other books. Most helpful books other than the Bible are ones that are helping us see the Bible. Making many books, well, there's no end in sight. And so make sure you prize this book above all others. Reckon with the shepherd's words and reckon with the final judgment. You see the last two verses. 
The end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And here's why. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's scary. Remember, this passage began with rejoice. So how do we get to rejoicing if we have to fear God in view of a coming judgment? Well, we have to say that this is the end of the matter, as Ecclesiastes says. This is a good summary of our whole duty. Fear God and keep his commandments. However, it's not the whole story. A lot has been microwaved down in this search that the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us about. No one book of the Bible contains the whole story. We call it progressive revelation. God has revealed himself in history progressively, not all at once. So Christians can know more than King David did, or Moses did, or the prophets of old. It's not because they're smarter, it's because they've been given more information, further information. And so when we come to something as old as the hills, like a judgment to come at the end of time, we have more information than the writer of Ecclesiastes had. And so we can turn to passages like 2 Thessalonians 1. Would you turn there? 2 Thessalonians 1 would be a place where the coming judgment is unpacked and clarified. And we Christians who have a whole Bible, not just Ecclesiastes, should know it. So here, 2 Thessalonians 1, starting in the middle of verse 7, it speaks of when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel, the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That's hell. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So Paul in 2 Thessalonians teaches us that Jesus specifically is the judge. He's the judge that will come at the end of time, and he will judge every secret thing, whether good or evil. But it's not merely based on works, because 2 Thessalonians 1 talks about those who either obey the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins, or they don't believe it. They either obey the gospel or they don't obey the gospel. And so there's a parting of the ways at the end of time. There are two kinds of people in the end. Those who are with Jesus and those for whom Jesus is against. There's destruction and dread or there is deliverance and delight and awe 
The same thing can be the best of things for some and the worst thing for others. Jesus is the key. You've got to reckon with him specifically now that he has come. Don't just remember your creator. We remember the Lord's death until he comes as Christians. We reckon with Jesus. We reckon with God through Jesus. Jesus is the shepherd. He said so in John 10. He's the divine human shepherd promised long ago and foreshadowed in this book. He paid for our sin. The book of Ecclesiastes speaks of sin and frustration and dissatisfaction in all kinds of ways. And we as Christians know that the answer is in Christ. He's forgiveness and satisfaction. Jesus died on the cross for our salvation and for our joy and fulfillment. He came to bring abundant life. He's our wisdom. Ecclesiastes is a wisdom kind of book. Well, in Colossians, we read that Christ, in him, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus himself said the queen of Sheba may have come to Solomon to get wisdom back in that day. But something greater than Solomon is here. Ecclesiastes speaks of death over and over again. And we do need to live in light of death that's still to come. This life is short. But in the New Testament, we find that Jesus conquered death. That's what the cross and resurrection is all about. He defeated death, so we don't even have to fear death now, whether we're talking about our death or Jesus' return. We can be approved. We can be righteous, not because we have been all that righteous or perfectly righteous, but because we have someone else's righteousness on our behalf by grace. We've obeyed the gospel. We've believed. We're with Jesus. And so when he comes, it'll be good. It'll be great. We will rejoice forever and ever. On a scale of 1 to 10, it'll be in 11. And so get after it now. Rejoice. You who have reckoned with God, you who remember the Savior, rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, we want to do just what this passage commands us to do but to do it in light of grace. In light of your mercy, Lord, we want to not dread, not be in terror, but with reverential awe in worship. We want to fear. We want to keep your commandments, Lord. Psalm 128 tells us, happy is the one who fears the Lord and walks in your ways. So, Lord, cause us to fear in all the right ways and to walk in your ways, that we might be happy and that we might stand in the day 
of judgment when Jesus comes again. Lord, we pray it would be a day of salvation for those in this room. We pray for some today here who haven't yet come to know the salvation in Jesus. Perhaps today would be a day of salvation. Now would be a time for their forgiveness and reconciliation with you. And Lord, that they would join us in longing for and looking for your coming would be a great, great thing. May it be so, Lord, for your namesake. Amen.